I uh, spent last weekend in prison. <laughs> the choir always laughs at that. They, they enjoy that more than they ought. It is a strange phrasing, I think, to start dressed like this. My children did sort of ask me about the choices I had been making. Um, they were confused that Daddy was going to spend four days um, down in the Briscoe unit in Dilly, Texas, on purpose. Uh, Kairos was the, the walk. Um, Kairos is much like Emmaus. You're not familiar with Emmaus. It's a series of talks uh, around tables. In response to those talks, people have conversations about their stories and their journey. It's a little different when it happens inside of prison walls in which the exchange of stories um, is in the context of uh, one group comes in wearing normal clothing, the other group is all wearing the white jumpsuits given to them by the state of Texas. Uh, in that space, uh, we ate a record amount of cookies. I don't think that's required, uh, but apparently that's a part of it. Amazing amount of food was eating as a blessing to folks to whom blessing has been a stranger. I'm still getting my mind around the experience, candidly, uh, about all that God was challenging me with and inviting me to see about assumptions that I make about how I measure, even though I know better, I measure life based on external realities, based on how things look rather than how things are on the inside. Scripture says clearly God sees the heart, not the outside, but uh, I think I see that until I'm confronted by a deeper truth. I'm also challenged by the notion of grace and forgiveness, which seems simple and easy until you're face-to-face -face with folks that have made choices that have deeply harmed folks. But then again, I realize that that is true for me as well. The transgressions of my life didn't violate the laws of the state of Texas, but they did harm the heart of God and fall short of that. And so what is this God about that pours out grace in such a radical way? I'm still getting my mind around that. I'm still encouraged by so much of what I experienced. Uh, it was a powerful and potent time. I highly recommend it to any and all who are curious to find somebody and ask them about Kairos. Um, I'm still encouraged by sort of an echo of revelation when in the letters John says to one of the churches, remember your first love. I remembered uh, being on this walk. One of my first loves happens all the time in this space. My first love is to be in a room in which somebody says, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven, and somebody somewhere believes it, maybe for the first time. I have fallen in love with being in that space and got to be there yet again. I'm in awe of the service of those on the team who uh, cooked so much food and baked all those cookies and did all the logistics it takes to move that many people and to prepare that much of a time, many university folks involved in that. I'm also, and this maybe has been the lasting thing I'll take away, concerned that people have not been practicing how to give high fives. The team would welcome us home uh, back from the unit as we come back uh, after a day, and they would send us out, and they would line up in rows, and I have not received that many high fives until I, since I hit a walk-off double in intramural softball 20 years ago. And that illustration is just so I could tell you I hit a walk-off double in intramural softball 20 years ago. I haven't received, maybe it's because, you know, I'm watching the World Series. I am from the greater Houston area, sort of in, involved in the Astros situation, even it up last night if you didn't catch it, 8-1, pretty exciting. Almost made up for the Longhorns. Um, not quite. Uh, but I, uh, the high five situation, you, know, you watch them hit a home run, there's all these different dances they do high fives. Well, that's what Kairos does. There's, there's like a row of high fives. I thought my mom was going to be at the end of the line waiting with orange slices. Like that's, 
That's how encouraged I felt. But I did see a few missed connections. And I thought, some of these folks have not been trained in the art of the high five. Do you know there is an art? And we practice it. It's all about where your eyes are directed. You know this? Where your eyes go. Some people think, I need to watch the other hand. And so they'll watch their hand and try to slope and try to strike where it's going to be. If someone's sitting still, it generally works. That's the other way to go. Just go stable. But if you have two moving hands, the thing to cue your eye on is the middle of the forearm to the elbow. That is your mark, not the hand. It works every single time if you'll use your eye. I did this with my boys yesterday to practice. I was like, it occurs to me that you are growing up and I have not worked on your high five mechanics. And like all of us, when they're learning a new thing, it, it's very hard to have your eyes not look, look at the hand. That's what they thought they're supposed to look to. And so it's really hard to do that, and yet it worked. And so they were like, wow. And I was like, keep practicing and you'll do it. But it's easy to fall back into bad habits and move your eyes to the hand. And then you'll get the, the weird miss, and then you kind of got to like do a shake and a bump like you meant to do it. Today is our Commitment Sunday where we offer our estimate of gifts for next year, pledges in historic language uh, of uh, churches. It is a chance for us to say, you know, we're in for next year's ministry and mission, uh, and this is what we believe our family is going to be able to do to see that happen. We only have one Sunday in our annual stewardship campaign. We don't do multiple weeks. I know you're disappointed crushed even. Um, We believe that this is an ordinary practice and we don't need, do we, four weeks of encouragement or uh, guilting to be motivated to be invested not only now but in the future of what God's doing in this place and in the world. Uh, And so we turn to scripture for a word uh, on generosity and giving to Paul's letter. It's the second one to Corinthians. We're in chapter 9. I'm going to start at verse 6. He's in the middle, as Paul generally is, of an argument. Uh, Paul is laying out his uh, ongoing ministry with the folks in Corinth. He even tells them about another community in Macedonia that has been a part of this as well. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, sees himself and his work uh, as not exclusively, but primarily as an apostle taking this gospel of Jesus, what God has done in the cross in the resurrection, out into Greek-speaking, ethnically non-Jewish Gentile communities. He goes to synagogues first, but when they don't jump on board uh, holistically, he moves on and, and finds those who will. And so he is spreading this out. He sees now that God shows no favoritism. Peter says this quote, uh, and it's also uh, Paul's conviction. And so he is collecting in these Greek-speaking, in these Gentile uh, groups, a collection of uh, money and resources to take back to Jerusalem, to law-observant, orthodox Jewish followers of Jesus, many of whom would face particular challenges economically because they'd said yes to Jesus. In a uh, first-century orthodox law-observant community, to say yes to Jesus as Messiah might mean your family says no to you belonging in their house anymore. So widows and orphans and uh, perhaps younger sons and and folks no longer welcome in the normal uh, network of social uplift and care are now in need. And so we see in Acts and now here in Paul this effort to make sure they're fed and cared for so that this new family might not have those among it who are harmed. Paul wants to make sure they're fed. He wants to make sure the saints in Jerusalem are looked after, but he also wants a tangible witness 
to the connection between those who were born into Gentile families and those who were born into Jewish uh, observant families that both follow Jesus. He wants them to see themselves under the same structure of blessing. And so he calls the Corinthians to be generous, to respond with abundance, and to invest in people they've never met. They will never meet until the life to come. He says, you give to them in generosity and they will be blessed and so will you. That's the crux of the mission. And it's a, uh, a way in which he connects them deeply to what God is doing in both their hearts and in the hearts of those law-observant Jews who are also following Jesus. But the words, I think, are helpful to us. And if you're with us in uh, much of September, we look through Ephesians verse by verse. And Paul makes much of bringing together both Jews and Gentiles in the same family. He says, if, if God can do this, if God can take down the walls between people who shouldn't be together, then God can do anything. And in some sense, that's his argument here. God can do this thing of abundance in you. He can take your heart, he can take our hearts and orient them towards the kingdom in such a way that we might do the unnatural thing, which is to give away freely that which the world values most. If God can tear down the walls between people who are supposed to be enemies and turn our hearts to generosity, the kingdom of God is already breaking into our midst. Verse six, the point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is the first of at least three references to Old Testament scriptures that Paul makes. Uh, Paul is so saturated in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that it becomes the language he speaks. And when he references one piece, he's really borrowing on the whole. Proverbs 22 is about the investment of a wise life. Proverbs is an interesting book. I don't know if you've spent any time in Proverbs. We tend to read it like needlepoint style. I don't, your mom probably didn't do it. My mom did needlepoint. So uh, that means like uh, you would sew little scriptures and it would be on the wall. Um, with like, you know, always a farming scene. Needle pointing, or my mother was very big on farming scenes. Um, and so uh, we needle point this, we get little pithy, short verses, and that's fine. If my favorite description of Proverbs, I, I got from somebody else that said that reading Proverbs from beginning to end in one sitting is a bit like going on an eight hour car ride with your mother after you've made a terrible life decision. There's a lot of correction in Proverbs. Um, and at different times, in different places, certain verses land for us in different ways. Here, Paul says, I want you to claim this story that was for Israel. It's for you, Gentiles, too. You are the people of God. You that sow abundantly will reap abundantly. Now, this is often leveraged by people dressed like this on days like this to tell you, now, whatever you gave last year, give more. That's what Paul's telling you. I don't think that's what he means. Um, now, you're welcome to do that. Um, but that isn't really the argument here. It's that if we live in um, sparingly is like in, in the belief that somehow if we hold on to it, we will get to keep it. And abundantly is open-handed. It's a disposition, not arithmetic. It's a disposition of heart that we give uh, with abundance, meaning we believe in this abundance. It has happened to us first that giving is not our first step towards God, it's actually a response to what's already happened within us in our identity. So it flows out of that so that Paul can continue to write, each of you must have in your mind made up, not reluctantly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There is an old preacher joke that says, if you write your check with bitterness and resentment, we will cash it. 
If you write it out of guilt, we'll take it. Um, but that really isn't the, the idea. And he writes this because I think while giving can be spontaneous, we can be somewhere and our heart can be stirred and we can give generously in that moment, whether at a, a fundraiser or in the life of somebody we care about or even at church, biblical giving is strategic. It, it's thought out. We made up in our minds what we're going to do and we give that not out of compulsion or guilt, but instead out of belief that we're investing in what God has already done and is doing in and through us. And that's how cheerfulness is a part of it because we've already set our minds to the course we're walking. We already, in Proverbs 22 language, have been rooted and grounded in an abundance that isn't measured by what's in our barns or our accounts or our 401ks. Um, We're already measuring abundance based on our orientation to what's true and real rather than what can be held and traded. And God is able, verse 8, to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you always have enough of everything and you may share abundantly in every good work. You're not going to go broke being generous, not if you're giving and investing in what God is doing in you and through the world. That's the promise. As it is written, he scatters abroad. This is God. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. This is Psalm 112. The psalm book is the hymn book of the ancient church and of uh, Israel, and Psalm 112 is a song of sowing generously the wise life of those who find themselves on the side of God's work in the world, not being foolish as those who try to keep and hold on to, but instead live graciously with neighbor and find that abundance has a, has a feedback loop in their own life of blessing. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is Isaiah 55, which I read at the very beginning of the service, which is not uh, a a guilt-ridden prophetic word, but instead an invitation to an abundant feast of God's blessing. Come, you who are hungry, and eat. Come who have nothing and find your hearts and pockets are filled. Come you are thirsty and drink from the water, the uh, the prophet says. Come and find yourself. The word of God comes to him and says, come and know that the word of God that is poured out upon us will achieve the purpose through which it has been sent in and through us. It's a prophetic word of confidence to a people who have known exile and emptiness. It is a story of coming home and fullness. It can be our story. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. The the enrichment that comes can sometimes be measured in our bank accounts, but oftentimes it's measured in the community we are get to be a part of. And again, this isn't about arithmetic, it's about orientation. It's not about getting our math right, it's about getting our hearts right. And the the image here is those who live tight-fisted around that which they can claim as their own, Versus those who live open-handed, those who live not as owners, but as stewards. It is the root of the fall in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve desire to be owners and not stewards. It is still the failing and fault of us who fall short of the glory of God to think my job is to own rather than steward. The Supaks don't own Grant William. They are stewards. We don't even own our hands and feet. We are stewards. The gifts that we've been given, Paul says early in Corinthians, don't belong to us. They belong to the body of Christ at work in the world. We are stewards, not owners. We think if we could have enough, we'll feel free. That we can own enough, we won't be anxious. We think, and we are told over and over again, if you have enough, if you look out for yourself, then you will be okay. 
The Bible says, you cannot keep, you cannot hold that which will be dust. Open your hands and abundance will flow in and out of your life. Anxiety is not erased by holding on to something. It is erased by having our hands open that God might fill it and fuel us for this mission. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. That is, the root of generosity is God's action already, and thanksgiving is our worship response. Oscar Wilde said that people don't appreciate sunsets because there's nobody to pay for them. Right? There's nobody to go pay for. We would appreciate a sunset more as an amazing cosmic work of art if only there was someone to pay for the beauty of getting to experience it. G.K. Chesterton said, Oscar Wilde is wrong. There is a way to pay for sunsets. It's by not being Oscar Wilde. That's a great burn, by the way. It's also an insight. It is how we respond to the beauty and grace poured out in our lives that is how we say thanks as stewards, not only of our own hands and feet, but the beauty of this earth, of the fields in which we toil, of the lives that we have been given, these breaths that we can't make happen. I often uh, say that getting married taught me what it was really like to love another person. It turns out that she has like her own thoughts about things that aren't, I know this will shock you, identical to mine. Nor does she simply exist to make me happy at all moments. I know, I was disappointed too. That love is different than that. Love's not about what we get. Love's about who we become as we give and put someone in front of us. Having children, it's not the only way to learn this, but having children taught me how to pray and say thanks. Because as I stared at those fragile little things that somehow had taken the heart out of my body and had it beating somewhere in a crib, and I watched them breathe, I realized I had no power to make the next breath come. Zero. And it's all I wanted in the world. And so I began, I reoriented my life around the gratitude of so many things I take for granted that I can't create. My life, and I bet yours is too, is a story of drinking from wells I didn't dig. I live under the shade of trees I didn't plant. I eat grapes uh, from vines I didn't tend. The blessings of my life are abundant. And it's tempting to try to grab hold of some of them and own it, but the scriptures just unclench these hands and want to pour through them so that through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. And by the generosity of your sharing with them, that's the folks back in Jerusalem and all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Here ends the reading. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love that last line. We're talking about being generous, but it's all rooted in the fact that we even can give because God has already been generous to us. Thanks be to God for this gift, Paul says, that we have something that we can share that knits us together against the lie that we are owners of something small and the whisper that tells us we're really and truly alone. We're not really loved. This is the voice of the enemy, the serpent that says, does God really say? It is the voice that says we're isolated and unlovable. It is the voice that says, if we don't have enough, we'll never be enough. And God says, you're beloved before you breathe. 
and I'll love you and keep you after your last mortal breath. It is God who says, I am enough, you're enough, and Jesus' offer on the cross is enough for you, and you are not alone. I have knitted you together in this community that's being sent. And Isaiah's right, the word will not go forth without achieving the purpose. The word made flesh in Jesus and the spirit poured out on our flesh that that word might declare to this city, to this community, to our neighborhoods, to our, our homes and our streets, that beauty, truth, love, and grace win. And I know it doesn't always look that way. I know I, I watch the same news that you watch. I see the same things happen as cruelty and, and brokenness and pain eat away at hope and joy. I see the same darkness threaten and bluster but I believe that the calling of God's people is to live in such a way to be open-handed that it might overflow among us, that the blessings that happen here touch the soil of everyone around so the seeds that we sow might overflow in a harvest, that San Antonio might indeed be a different city. Friends, I, I don't know how to fix D.C. I don't know how to fix the Methodist Church writ large. Uh, I don't know how to fix myself. But I do know that I've been given these feet. I've given these hands to steward. We've been given each other in this moment and this time. I know that this morning I woke up and it wasn't hot in South Texas. Things can change and be different. And I believe the coals of that fire are already hot and glowing in this place. And the spirit of uh, the living God is boring upon those coals. If we put more logs upon that and the fire is growing as God goes to work in our midst, not that university can be anything, but that God can get his way on the neighborhoods and the streets and the work and the schools that we have been sent to. We believe we exist that good news might reign and rule in the hearts of those who meet us and the communities to which we have been sent. We exist because we believe no one should have to wander or walk this life alone or lonely, believing they are unlovable and not enough. We believe that everybody needs a place where they can tell the truth about their story and be loved anyway where the grace of God is poured out in those spaces in such abundance that hearts are reshaped and reformed and futures are different. We believe that no one should have to live a life within view of this steeple who hasn't tasted, touched, and felt compassion. That good news should follow after the investment that God has made in the gifts and talents of you, of us, and of our partners in Jesus Christ in this community. And we believe um, that Christ's offer of grace and forgiveness is for every human heart that everyone should know the love of God writ large in the world, and that we exist to build bridges, to tell stories, to go into prisons and come out of prisons, to be freed from places, whether there are walls that bind us or we are stuck behind the walls in which our neighborhoods are constructed. We believe that God is at work in our midst, and we invite you to give to that today and in the future. I look, friends, I look several times in the Bible for it to say, and lo, you shall give to the Methodist church nearest to your house. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say anything about University Methodist Church. Jesus didn't mention it. I brought it up to him. I said, my job would be easier, Jesus, if you did that. Doesn't say that. It says be generous. It doesn't even say give to a particular church. And what I'll tell you is one of the ways I invite you to be a cheerful giver is find a place where your heart glows with God's purposes and give there. The command is generosity not to give to a church's budget. That is not the invitation. 
The invitation is to find where your heart might be rooted and aim it. And then you can't miss. That's where our eyes have to be fixed. Just like a high five that has to be executed, we have to reorient and train where our eyes are set to see. We like to look at what's flashing and moving in the world, and God says, fix your eyes on the root, on the base, on the true story of my love and grace for you, and all up here is going to work out. You won't miss. You won't miss a chance to care for those who are grieving. You won't miss a chance to tell the truth amidst the lies. You won't miss a chance to stay calm in the storm of this present hour. You won't miss, we won't miss, if we are rooted and grounded in the story of God's generous grace to us. So we invite you to prayerfully consider being generous. We believe that God's at working here, but be generous somewhere. That's the call. Be generous in some way and be generous with thought and strategy, being deliberate and intentional because your heart will follow. Jesus says it, aim your treasure, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Plant them and invest them in a place that will never grow dust, can never be stolen, and never be taken away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing abundance you have poured out upon us. We thank you for the ministry of Paul to connect the Gentiles with those back in Jerusalem now knit us together in the same mission that the world might see a different way to be that all the unnatural things that uh, we're called to do, um, the world says are unnatural, might become normal in you, which is to love people we disagree with, who are different than us, who speak differently than us, than, that have had different stories than us. And Lord, heal us and open our hands and our hearts that we might be generous with joy, investing in what you're doing in the world, that we might find ourselves blessed in abundance. We might find ourselves cheerful and overjoyed by seeing your mission, your work, that we prayed in the Lord's Prayer come true, that your will will be done here on earth as it already is in heaven. We pray this in the name uh, of Jesus Christ, um, who is our Lord and Savior, um, who we love and who we gather together in his name. Amen.